everyone. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beal and some Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And, and I swear, every time we watch these big three play, every time we're watching history, and, and who better to bring on than tennis historian, a Hall of Famer, and also my co-host on this podcast, Steve Flink. I mean, there's no words, and it's just unbelievable what we're seeing with, with Rafa, Roger, and now Novak. I mean, you've been covering tennis a, a lot longer than I have. It's hard for me to put into words what we're watching. It is hard to. I mean, listen, they've all three been so extraordinary and enduringly, enduringly magnificent. You might say, you know, Roger winning his first major back in '03, and Rafa got on the board at the French in '05, and Novak won his first in '08, and they're still here. We'll see how much longer Roger's aboard. It's understandable; he's almost 40 years old now, and we'll see if Rafa can have a resurgence after what for him was a was a jarring loss to a great player in Novak at this, in the semis of the French. But they have had, it has been a golden era, one which I think is very unlikely to ever be surpassed. It just took so many elements for this to come into place, David, but you're so right. We are very fortunate and we are definitely fortunate to see Djokovic cashing in on his greatness in a way that he, he never, maybe he may, he's already had some phenomenal years like 2015 and 2011 both years he won three majors 2016 he was halfway to the grand slam and now here he is having become the first player since labor he already was the first since labor david to win four majors in a row which was 2015 and 16 that streak came to it and now he's the first player since labor to win the first three majors of a season and put himself in a position to win the grand slam and wouldn't it be terrific if Rod Lay, if Novak is in a position to do it and he makes the finals in New York, if Rod Laver gets on a flight in California and comes up and is able to greet him if, if, if Novak pulls off the accomplishment. And, you know, we touched on this after the French Open wrap, uh, the French Open wrap up and the ramifications of Novak beating Rafa in that semifinal were huge because if Rafa, as he typically does 13 times, wins that for a 14th time, um, you're now at a spread of 21 for Rafa and 18 for Novak. That didn't happen. You know what happened. It was not a three slam spread. It was a one slam spread. And now we're all knotted up with three guys at 20. That match was in his, in historical perspective, that match was a huge, huge match for both guys. Yeah, that one was huge. And, and then the Djokovic Federer Wimbledon final of two years ago when Roger could have had his 21st major and Djokovic took it away from him, saving two match points. Don't think, David, that all of those facts that you just stated and, and that you and I know so well were not paramount in Djokovic's mind when he went on the court with Nadal in Paris. He was well aware of that. I think in the back of his mind, he thought they were, he thought they were in a way that they were playing for the title. Not that he was taken for granted the other side of the draw where he had Zareb against Tsitsipas and Tsitsipas won it. But where in, 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 he knew that Rafa was going to be a clear favorite to beat either one of those guys in the final and that he himself would be too. So he looked at that as a final and he looked at it for the historical reasons that you just cited. That's mm -hmm. that made that match all special. And it made today special, David, because he's aware as he's down a set against Berrettini in the finals of Wimbledon, I, I, how important it is to keep this streak going, to win his third major in a row, to stay alive with his Grand Slam aspirations, and then to get number 20. Because you just don't, it's not that you're thinking, if I lose this, I'll never win another major again, but you don't want any opportunities to get away from you. And he's done a terrific job of that, starting with the resurgence in 2018 at Wimbledon. 
when he beat Rafa in an epic five-set semi, another critical match, and then went on to beat Kevin Anderson in the finals. And, you know, they beat Del Potro to win the U.S. Open that year. So he had two majors after having had a very difficult 2017 with the elbow problems. And then, you know, he keeps going. He gets two more in, in 19, including the, the recovery against Rogers, saving two match points. And then last year was a difficult year because he, he won the Australian at the start of the year, but got tossed out of the U.S. Open for very unfortunately, you know, slapping a ball that hits a lineswoman, and that's the rule, and he's gone. But that was a tournament he probably was going to win. Then Rafa routed him in the French Open final. So he only got one major, which is low for him right. in 2020. Now here he, has, here he is with the first three of the season. And, you know, these have been some tough, tough opponents he's had to face, David. Medvedev in the finals of the Australian. He, he had to beat Tsitsipas after beating Rafa, after having already survived a five-setter against Ucetti in the round of 16. And now coming here, you know, these last two rounds, especially the draw was good up till the semis, but he faced a top of the line, Denis Shapovalov, yeah. and then, of course, Berrettini in the final. So he had to work hard and he had to perform very well in the clutch in the last two rounds. And he did just that. You know, it's incredible. You mentioned the 2020 U.S. Open final. I mean, there, he, there's a strong, strong, strong case that if that crazy circumstance doesn't happen, Novak has 21 right now. I mean, that, right. that 2020 U.S. Open, Roger and Rafa were not in the field. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. So Novak would most likely have gone on to be, you know, it, it, to win that title, not to sell Zarev or, or a team, team short. And team, that was a terrific final and team won it. But most likely Novak was going to win that tournament. But, but now, you know, he's taken and then he went from there and lost, got the drubbing from Rafa in the French Open final. So it turned out to be a very difficult end of the year after a great start winning in Australia. But. It hasn't it hasn't deterred him in the least this year, because last year the goal was always getting the most weeks at number one, which he finally did surpass Roger. And now that goal is behind him. And it, it, it was the focus was back sharply on winning every major he possibly could. Now, the other yeah, I, I, the other interesting thing, let me just throw in, is that he did say in his press conference after the match today that he's only 50 50 on the Olympics now. And the we're going to talk about for, that. Yeah, we're okay. going to talk about that because you had you had um after our French Open or we did it with Steve Weissman, right? You had mentioned with right. Steve Weissman, we talked yeah. about that if he was going to go or he's going to talk about his game. We're going to get to that in a minute, but I want to sure. talk about the, the men's final today a little bit because sure. I don't think anyone's surprised with the result, but it's rare you see Novak jump out to a big lead like that, kind of give that set uh, away, and then again, as we see so many times, whether it's an opponent facing Roger. Rafa or Novak it's so hard to keep that level up for the course of three out of five sets and you know again Novak won sets two three and four um I just wanted to hear your take on on a little bit yeah I was very surprised because for the first couple of service games Novak he served two doubles in his first game and another double ball in the third game he managed to kind of wiggle out of those service games and then found his bearings and suddenly, the next thing you know, he's he's got a 5-2 lead, and there's an eight-deuce game on Berrettini's serve. One set point for Novak. So he almost could have won the set 6-2. But I thought when that long game ended, that Novak would, would just serve it out. No problem. He got to 30 all. He got to deuce. He couldn't close it out. I think he got a bit tight. And Berrettini started swinging away a little bit more freely and connected with one forehand on the sideline that was originally called out and would have given Novak set points. And the the, uh, the, re the challenge was won by Berrettini. The ball was on the line. So, yeah, that was very strange. Then they went on to a tie break and he got outplayed in the tie break 7-4. So it was strange. I remember thinking at the end of the set, how did he lose that set? It seemed so much in his 
grasp at 5-2. But that was the most interesting thing he said. We'll go over. You and I should talk about those, those last three sets. But when it was over, he said it sort of was a relief. He used the word relief when he lost the set because he felt so tense the whole first set was his point. Now he just decided, okay, that's done. I didn't win it. But rather than let that plague him, he just, he, he felt like he, he did start hitting, hitting out freely. And the next thing you know, he's up for love in the second set. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of, David? You remember the Tsitsipas match in Paris. It's two sets to love for Stefanos. And, and Stefanos is serving, I think, a one-two in the third, and he's got 40-15. And Djokovic came back and broke him. And that was a pivotal game, and he rolled on from there. A little bit similar today. Berrettini's up 40-15 in the first game of the second set. Djokovic comes back to break him. And that was an, another crucial turning point because, you know, he had the break and the momentum, momentum shifts and he breaks him again in the third game, rolls out to four love. He did have a little difficulty from four love and five one. And it was a strange sequence because he lost his serve and then had love 40 on Berrettini's serve, triple set point to break for the set. And Matteo held on gamely, but then Novak just shut the door at five four with an easy love hold. And so there we are one set all. And I felt at that point he did have control of the match. And then he gets that nice early break in the third and he nurses that all the way through and played with really kind of percentage, somewhat, somewhat cautious, but not missing, missing very few balls as only he can. And the next thing you know, he's got that third set. Fourth set was fascinating, David, because I thought when Djokovic was serving a two, three love 30, there was a sense, okay, he better not let this game get away because, because if he loses his serve here, Baratuni's up 4-2 and maybe the next thing you know, in the blink of an eye, two aces and a couple of service winners and it's 5-2. So Novak dug in and they had just the most spectacular point of the match that got Novak back to 30-all in that 2-3 game where Mateo had him, he had a vicious slice back in that Novak somehow got back off the forehand. He scooped it back and then Mateo rips that inside out forehand and Novak lunges, somehow gets that back. Then Mateo drop shots and Djokovic comes scampering all the way across the court with incredible alacrity and hits and manages to steer a forehand past Mateo. And that's when he connected with the crowd, unlike any other moment in the match. And interestingly, getting out of that point, getting, getting that hold, then he just took over and he, and he broke him and, and served his way to 5-3 and gets another insurance break at the end. I thought it was a really nice ending for Djokovic, those last four games to close it out. You know, it's funny. Darren Cahill said something that was really interesting to me. And we always see like, we always see the level. We all want to know, want to know how great the greats can play at a certain level. And when he would tell Simona that when her opponent was playing very well, it wasn't necessarily that Simona had to raise her level. He would say, just keep your very high level as is because your opponent will most likely drop a little bit over time. And you wonder, you know, when you see these guys who play Roger, Rafa, Novak, they may play a tight first set or even beat them the first set. Does Roger, Rafa, and Novak's level go up or do they just keep that extremely high standard and their opponents eventually just fall a little bit? And that's all you need in this, at this sport. Probably a combination. Probably a combination because I do think Novak's level went up, especially those first four games of the second set when he took control again and played even better than he had to establish the lead in the first set. But it's true. And I think they think that way, but they do want to take it up a notch if they can to put that added burden of pressure on the opponent. And Novak certainly did that. And the great thing about him today was the only two times he lost his serve, oddly, he was trying to serve out that first set. And then again, when he was two breaks up in the second set, he lost his serve, but he had a extra break in hand and wins the set. And the last two sets never dropped his serve. 
And so I thought it was a really a, a very professional performance. And and he exposed obviously some of the limitations in Berrettini on the other, you know, off the backhand side, especially, you know, having to rely too much on the slice and Novak made him pay for that. And then also the other thing he exposed is that if you can keep, if you can drive the ball deep cross court off your forehand and play Mateo that way and not let him be running around his backhand, smacking right. those fear forehands, then <laughs> there's a way to break him down a little bit that way too. So in the end, I thought Djokovic was clearly superior from the baseline and established that beautifully over the last two sets. But yeah, he didn't try to play ridiculously well. He just tried to take it up that slight notch and he managed it. So here we are 2020 and 20. Um, I want to refer back. And again, you could hear the episode that Steve and I had with Steve Weissman, all credit to you, Steve, you had your doubts. If he, if Novak had won Wimbledon that he was going to go to Tokyo in the Olympics. And you said, that's not a definite. And you've, felt strongly he was going to talk with his team. Obviously, there were some recent events um, in, in a few days ago, no crowds and some things have changed. Um, he said, at, Novak himself said after this match, it's now 50-50. I think if we had to put, you know, some some money down, which we don't do on this podcast, but if we did, he's I don't think he's going to go. I mean, especially with what's at stake, he's going to prepare every possible way to prepare himself for New York. And my gosh, I mean, can you imagine? And, and just imagine if Rafa and Novak played in the final for the first one to 21 and Rafa trying to keep Novak away from that calendar grand slam. It'd be spectacular. No, I agree with you. And I, frankly, that was what I was sort of hoping for when we had the discussion with Steve Weissman. It's a t it, it's honorable of him that he wants to win so badly for Serbia and not just for himself and get that gold medal. And, and, and it, it shines in Serbia and it reflects well on his nation, but under these circumstances, it doesn't, it, you know, with the U.S. Open around the corner, and now he does have that third leg of the slam. Plus, with Tokyo having no fans and Djokovic talking about how few people they can take with them, and he wouldn't even be able to bring his stringer, stringer. Then, then maybe he's not going to be able to do his best work, never mind the no crowds, but he needs the people around him. I mean, he's not going to want to rely on some stringer over in Tokyo. Uh, <laughs> he's got his own guys. So I just think... It is. It is looking like that. And he did admit he did admit in the interview with Darren Cahill, too, that he was, you know, you're exhausted when this is over and you do need a little time to recover. They were talking about New York, but that's all the more reason why feeling the way he does now playing these two majors, only two weeks between the French and Wimbledon this year, why he would then say to himself, you know what, I can't ask it of myself. It's too much. It's a long, long trip. And it's really difficult circumstances and kind of depressing for them, I think, to have no crowds like that. That yes, I would say maybe he said 50-50, but I take that as more 80-20. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Um, we can talk about the greatness of these guys for for hours and days and weeks, but um, I do want to hit on a couple other players that that played remarkably these um these last two weeks. And two of them, the Canadians in Felix Ajir Aliasim and and Denis Shapovalov. I mean, here you have Felix beating Zverev in the quarters, six four in the fifth, lost to Berrettini. We all know Berrettini, how well he did this tournament. Um, y'all said Shap Shapovalov, who beats Kachinov 6-4 in the fifth. Um, Shapovalov played so well against Novak. He didn't get a set off them, but all three of those sets were incredible. The thing that I was so impressed with Dennis is he hits so big. You know, it, it can get a little roller coastery over his matches, but you didn't really see that these two weeks. He was playing really, really well. And um, the, the, I know Canadian tennis fans are, are flying high. Those two guys are going to be around playing big, important matches for a long, long time. 
De yes, you know what, David? Dennis, he had his ups and downs. He started the tournament with a five-setter against Cole Schreiber. He, he did have the five-setter with Hatchinov, but he played brilliantly to obliterate Andy Murray, and he, he did the same against Felix Algarlisian. You know, I mean, I mean, excuse me, against Roberta... Batista Agut. <laughs> getting the wrong name here. Bautista yeah. Agut, such a tough customer, semifinalist a few years ago, and he and Dennis rips him apart in straight sets. So th that was impressive. But he'd gone five with Hatchinov against Novak. His level was incredibly high all three sets, and I that did surprise me. I thought he would miss more. I, I wasn't surprised how well he served, but I was more surprised by the consistency of that powerfully aggressive game from the backcourt on both sides. So Novak had to really hang in there. And of course, pivotal point, I think, was 5-4 first set, Dennis serving for it at 30-all, and Novak managed to somehow get that one more ball back off his forehand as only he can do again with that defense. And Dennis missed with the court open. And then uh, Novak ends up breaking and winning the set. And But the second set was a struggle all the way, and Novak had a love 40. He had a 15-40 in his serve. He kept holding on, finally breaks at 5-all. And then the third set, same thing. He breaks it five all again. So seven, six, seven, five, seven, five. And, and uh, Dennis, of course, was distraught afterwards. You could see him crying as he left the court. And Djokovic, you know, I'm glad that Shapovalov spoke about it. And I'm, I'm, that, that Novak approached him in the locker room and consoled him and told him what a great future he's got. And I think that's a side of Djokovic that just does not get played up enough. I, I get the relationship with most of the other players is quite good. And, and the competition ends when the match ends. And then when he sees them before and after, I think he really knows how to communicate with them. And I thought that was a very decent gesture to yeah. uh, reach out to Dennis that way. But yes, great, great tournament for Dennis, David. And Felix played very well uh, in, in the match against uh, Matteo. That was a good match. And right. it went at all and five all in the third and Berrettini finally got broken, pulled away. But was very close up until then, and they're really good buddies, but uh, he, he did a nice job. He's definitely steadily improving. He'll make his move soon, he, you know, just the way Dennis, in a way, did here by getting to the semi. Felix, Felix will be up there with him. Those two are going to really carry Canadian tennis for a long time. Yep. I, I agree. And, and again, on the, on the women's side, if she can just get healthy, right, Bianca and Drescu, I mean, she just needs yeah. to stay healthy, but those three, um, my gosh, you got to be fired up if you're a Canadian tennis fan. Um, I'm worried. We, we, I'm a little worried about Bianca. Truthfully, I agree with you. I wish she would stay healthy, but I haven't seen any evidence that she can. It's really, it's such a shame when you think of that spectacular U.S. Open and beating Serena in the finals. How well she played that whole tournament, and what a what a great player she is to watch. She's electrifying. So you want her healthy, but it it just hasn't been consistently there. We we can only hope for the best. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, let's let's talk. Let's talk Roger, because uh, that match, I mean, he played Herbert Herkosh, who, uh, you know, Herkosh has had a tremendous year. Not only did he get to the semis uh, of Wimbledon, but I mean, he, he won Del Rey. He won Miami. Um, he's had a great, great year for his standards. Um, the second set tiebreaker, Roger had opportunities. He missed an easy forehand on the second set tiebreaker. He also missed a, a what's a very easy volley. It turned out to be difficult for him because he slipped on the center yeah. service yeah. line. Um, he was and falling. then the third set was just, it, it was ugly. And I, I don't know if it was, it was deflated with what happened the second set. You rarely see that with Roger. Um, I'll ask you what I asked you about him with, with French Open. If, Okay. Yeah, just a quick point on that. 
you're right. You rarely see it. Oddly, we saw something like that against Felix in Halley, where they split sets and suddenly before you knew it, Felix was at 4-11 in the third. He won at 6-2. Roger managed a couple of holes, but it was kind of similar the way he got blown away and that he seemed mentally to be a little out of it. And that happened a bit here. I don't know whether it was a feeling that he couldn't come back and win three sets in a row. He was discouraged by losing the tiebreak for the very reasons you just cited. I don't know exactly what it was, but I, I, it's going to be fascinating to see what his plans are from here on in and what he might play before the Open and whether he goes to the Olympics. And he's got some difficult decisions. He handled it very well. I expected more sort of sadness and frustration. I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it. So it'll just be interesting to see what, his, what he and his team decide they're going to do going forward. But I just think it's going to get harder and harder. This year has not gone well for him. It no. really has. And to his defense, he was not. I mean, he's played so few matches up until right. Wimbledon. I mean, to his defense, this is not your typical season that Roger prepared for and what he was doing. Play. I mean, he was trying to peak, do everything he could to be healthy for Wimbledon, but you're still not playing all these matches. And even the greatness of Roger Federer, he's now almost 40 years old. Um, those things all make a difference, whether you're successful or whether you're not as successful as you would like to be. And I'll, I'll ask you the question that I asked you after the French. Do you think we'll see him back at Wimbledon in 2022? I, I, I think the chances may have decreased slightly, but I'm not convinced. I'm not totally convinced. It'll, a lot will depend on how he rides out this year, whether he gets any sense of encouragement. If something happens at the Open where he makes a really not nice run to the semis and plays a couple of really good matches and is competitive with, with a Novak or a Rafa or somebody in the semis. And, but that's going to be, that's not going to be easy either. There are just so many guys out there now. So I don't know. I'm not as sure. At one time I thought he would definitely be back there next year, but this was, this was jarring for him. I think that the draw, it was something of a bluff. He did a nice job of taking advantage of a very good draw. He was lucky in the first round. Of course, with, you know, with, you know, you got an opponent who's playing that well, uh, you know, take and, and before the fifth set, he hurts his knee and he's gone. I mean, a guy who's never beaten you, you know, it, that, that, that could have, that match could have gotten away. He could have been out in the first round. Then he got on a pretty nice roll until he played Herkosh. And so now we have to see, I just think uh, your point about the matches is well taken only eight matches coming in. So how was he going to then suddenly win seven at Wimbledon? Was right. asking a lot, a lot of him. Yeah, and uh, he'll he'll assess it. I think he's honest with himself. I hope the people around him are honest. They are such admirers of his. Severin Luthi and you know Lubacic are they they're very smart, great tennis minds. But at some point they have to be honest with him too. If they think it's time to go, they should say it. Yeah. Roger yeah. will decide himself in the end. And that it doesn't have to be done in a mean way. And I'm not saying they should be saying that right now, but I, I maybe they might want to be saying that if things continue this way through the open and slightly beyond, and they're looking toward the end of this year into next year, at that point, do they maybe say, maybe, maybe this isn't worth it. You're at, maybe you just can't do this anymore after all those surgeries and you are 40 now. And do you really need this? I mean, yeah. that, that, that's, that's not easy, but I think when, when there are good, honest relationships between friends and, and coaches, that's the best thing for the player. And Roger can always come back at that, them and say, no, you're wrong. Right. I, can, I can still do this, but I think they should voice it if they feel it. Yep. Um, I want to conclude with, with Ash Barty, but before I want to conclude with Ash, um, 
there were two matches that you and I, when we um, did our preview of Manic Monday, that we were really looking forward to. And, and um, one of the two that I want to talk about was a guy um, who we were so high on. He, he was playing on his 21st birthday, Sebastian Cordovers, Karinkachinov. I mean, that was a crazy match. They lose. What, I don't even remember the fifth set score. It seems like it's three weeks ago, but there were 13 breaks uh, right. alone right. in the fifth set. I think there were nine in a row. Was it eight, six or nine, seven? He lost. Great. 10, eight. Yeah. I think it was 10, eight. Listen, um, yeah. 10, eight. But here, but the thing is that it Hatchinoff would have been absolutely beside himself if he'd lost because he's the one who was serving for the match every time, yeah. you know, and finally he went behind, I think eight, seven, and he managed to hold. And then broke again and finally served it out on the fourth attempt. So it was really pretty brave of Corda to keep hanging in there and breaking back. And I think his attitude was just excellent because, you know, rather than bemoan his lost opportunity, oh, I was so close. If I could have won this, I'd be in the quarterfinals. Wimbledon. It was like, no, he was here. It was his birthday, but he took it as a positive that he'd done that well in his Wimbledon debut. He knows there's many great days ahead for him. And he talked about the learning process. So yeah. I really like his attitude. It's a very healthy one. And, and he took that loss just the way he should have. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it was just such a weird set. I mean, especially I know grass isn't playing like it was back in the late eighties, early nineties, Edberg and Becker, where you, yeah, you just needed a decent serve and you were going to hold. I know the grass isn't playing like that, but still on grass, you don't get nine breaks in a row and 13 breaks. All in one set. Oh, no, it's great. no, that should never happen. And they, they know it. And I think okay. the part of it was they both got tight, but especially hatching off when he was up the break serving for the match. Each time he didn't make terrible errors, but he would create an opening serve wide, open the court and steer the approach. And then quarter would pass him. That kind of thing was happening to both. They got a little too cautious on their own serves, but it was a fascinating match to watch. Yeah. The, the other match I want, I want to hear your thoughts on where the, um, the round of 16 match with Coco Goff or, or Sanjali Kerber. And I was expecting, uh, and I have to be careful. We all have to be, be careful when we say we're expecting a little bit more from Coco because gosh, she's still so young. She's so good and to make the second week of the slams um, is incredible for what she's doing. But that match, I was really looking forward to that match. And, and in my opinion, there really wasn't that much to dive into. Kerber was just better than her that day. I think it was six, three or six, four, six, four. Um, yeah. yeah. Six, four, six, four. Yeah. And, and Coco said in her press, she's like, I'm getting to these second weeks. I'm getting to these bigger matches. I know I have to change something, have to do a little bit better in these bigger moments. And no doubt it will happen. I was just hoping that match itself was going to be a little bit tighter, more entertaining. And they're really, yeah. Angelique just really beat her. I still think it was very entertaining. And I, she got kind of a lesson in tactics and, and uh, you know, against a very experienced wily left-hander who's won this tournament three years ago. So it was no disgrace. But listen, it doesn't take away from the, all the progress that Coco has made across, across the spring and into the summer. She's been terrific. And I think get her back on the hard courts and playing in her own country in the States and everything. And she'll have, she'll have a nice run leading up to the Open. And at the Open, she could be really dangerous. I mean, I, the crowds are going to go wild for her there. So she's got a lot of positive things in store. I, I want to end with, with Ash Barty and my gosh, I mean, you see the picture, everyone's been showing that picture of her as a little girl with the tennis racket. I don't know. She's got to be six years old. Um, and, and now to her holding the Wimbledon trophy. I mean, I don't think there's one person who has ever said anything bad about her. Everybody loves her. Um, she started that match with, with Carolina Pliskova. but Ash wins the first 12 points of the match. Um, <laughs> she's up a set in six, five. She plays an awful game 
to serve out that match in the second set. I, I, I know nerves, even with the best of them, nerves gets to you. But again, the great ones have this skill of regrouping and starting on a blank slate and wins that sixth third in the third. Um, her athleticism is ridiculous. I mean, here's someone who took years off and played another sport completely away from tennis. Uh, right, right. Back um, is it, so good. I know someone on Twitter said they liked her slice the slice has backspin and sidespin. Someone said they liked her slice better than Steffi Graf's. I don't, I don't know about that. Steffi sliced really bit, really, really hard. Oh, um, I, I'm not going along with that one, but it's a great slice. It's a great yeah. slice. Listen, I, you described it well. I might be a little less critical of this serving for the match game. And I thought it was a disappointing game. I didn't think she asserted herself well. I thought she should have been able to serve it out, particularly since Pliskova in the previous game had had 40 love with the court wide open for a volley and she nets the volley and they put the camera on Martina and Billie Jean who were yeah, grimacing, yeah, yeah. grimacing because that they're both great volleyers and they hated to see a point lost in that fashion. But Pliskova had blown that 40 love lead to allow uh, Ash to serve for the match. But yeah. I was happy we got a third set and I thought Ash played a really solid third, got the break early, kept it going saved a break point in the last game, which was, was very impressive and closed it out. Nice final in the end. We, we benefited by getting the extra set, but I do agree with you that in the future, she's got to do a better job of closing out some of these matches. That's sort of a pattern with Ash. And what she does is 90% of the time, she regains her authority and still manages to win in three, but there are going to be matches against the likes of Naomi or potentially Serena or whoever it might be, other really top flight players who won't necessarily let her get away with that. And I think yeah, that's nice to see a, uh, it was nice to see a third set. I, I can't remember the, the year at the top of my head, but it had been quite a while since we've had a third set in the women's <laughs> final. Yeah. Oh, they um, tend to be all straight setters. You're right. Yeah. Well, congratulations, um, both Novak um, and to Ash Barty. I mean, impressive by, by both obviously. And then New York. I mean, this is your hometown, Steve. I mean, there's going to be so much at stake. I just got chill bumps thinking about it. We got a ton of tennis before we get to that stage in New York, but um, my gosh, I mean, if Novak does this. David, one quick prediction though. Let's just say that Novak does not play the Olympics, that we're both right. I don't think you're going to see him go crazy over his results in Cincinnati and Canada. You know, I think he, he knows what matters here. And normally he would treat those. He'd be all out for those. He just wants to get some matches in, in those events. When you've won three majors already, you don't need the confidence of winning Cincinnati or, or Canada. So I, I do think he's going to keep those in perspective and try hard and see what he can do and see how motivated he is and hopefully get to some quarters or semis. But that's really all he would need to come into New York with just some hard court match play and then put it all on the line at the U.S. Open. You know, it's been an odd tournament for him. You think about Wimbledon here, six out of seven finals, never lost a final in Australia, nine titles. Lost a bunch in Paris because mainly because of Rafa, but in New York, he's three and five in the finals of the U.S. Open on his best surface. So, and then he had the mishap last year. So in a way it would, um, it would be sort of fitting, I think, for him to pull off this slam and have a great U.S. Open on, on, on his best surface and finish it off and, and get another, get his fourth title there. Unbelievable. There was a tweet and I, I wish I had it written down. Um, there was a tweet that said the eight best guys with the most slams before the big three, there were eight of them and it reached 60. And now you got the big three and they're at 60, 20, 20 and 20. Let's yeah. see if Novak can get the calendar grand slam. 
what if Rafa's in the final? Can he get to 21 first and prevent? I mean, you know, whoever is playing Novak in the semis final, they are going to want to derail him from getting the calendar. Oh, of, of course. Absolutely. No, listen, if Rafa got that, if Rafa manages that, and granted, he's he, Rafa's had two great U.S. Opens not far back in 17 and 19. That neither neither one was he really expected to win, and he did a great job to add those to his 2010 and 2013 titles for four U.S. Opens. But if he gets that far and he played Novak in the semis or finals, uh, it would be magnificent. But uh, he's going to have to play his way back into form, and he's starting in D.C. He's he's yeah. announced playing Washington, so that's good. Shows yeah. how serious he is about getting ready for the Open. He decided no Olympics, but he's. He's going to get some good hardcore preparation himself. And I think what that's designed to do for Rafa, David, is he doesn't really like Cincinnati. The courts are so fast. And he may be this way. He, he does really well in Washington and Canada. And then he, he, he pulls out of Cincinnati and practices for the Open. But, yeah, mm-hmm. he'll, he'll be going all out for sure. There's no doubt about it. Crazy times. Um, want to um, just tell everybody moving forward, you know you got Newport this week and they do the Hall of Fame there. Um, Steve obviously is, is, is a hall of famer himself. And I'm looking forward to doing an upcoming episode with Steve. Steve's going to talk a little bit about his experience, um, his personal experience going through it, getting inducted. He's also going to talk about the process in general as a whole. Um, truly so, so cool. And such an honor that, that you're in the hall of fame. So I'm looking forward to doing that. We have not also forgot. Um, we have not forgotten about some, some question and answers again that's ask david and steve at gmail.com we have a list of them we just haven't gotten to them because the grand slams have been so packed and and um we've had so much talk about the slams but we're gonna we're gonna start addressing those questions as well so um with that steve i feel like i almost feel like the french open and wimbledon were just like back to back i know they're they had three weeks in but it's been so action-packed here thank you for all of your time and all your special insight and, and looking forward i really am looking forward to hearing what you're saying uh what you have to say about Newport, because my God, talk about the history of that place. My gosh. Well, we'll do that, David. I look forward to it. And this was great fun recapping Wimbledon. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, Steve. We'll talk soon. You got it.